You're going to love this. Just love it. Oh, I hope you will. I really do. I'm not scared. Diane Feinstein might be. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you. Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around. Swell fellow says me from bradblog.com here with another live broadcast from Los Angeles's 90.7 FM KPFK Pacifica Radio 98.7 FM Santa Barbara 93.7 FM in San Diego 99.5 FM Ridgecrest in China Lake and of course coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org on the Stitcher app on the TuneIn app on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Liberal Justice Radio, and now on iTunes. Yes, you can run, but you can't hide. Glad you could join us here this afternoon. All right, we've got a whole lot to do today, uh, and maybe we'll have an update on uh, uh, on our e-cig show from last week, which uh, stirred up a few hornets' nest, thankfully. Uh, and, of course, as usual, we'll be joined a little bit later by Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. Since the Senate was up all night this week, finally deciding to give a damn about climate change. And, uh, oh, by the way, they ran out of snow up in Alaska. That's right. They ran out of snow during the iconic Iditarod dog, uh, dog sled race. But other than that, nothing to worry about, Right. Oh, and it's pushing 80 degrees out here today in Los Angeles. But never mind. Don't listen to that. Nothing to see here. Uh, we will get uh, to all of that a little bit later. But first, uh, last week as we went to air, the first news of a remarkable scandal emerging between the CIA and the U.S. Senate was just beginning to break. The CIA, had uh, it, it had been alleged, had been spying on the computers used by the U.S. Senate staffers on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence who were investigating Bush-era detention and torture policies by the CIA. On Tuesday of this week, the scandal blew wide open after California's uh, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, the chair of that Senate committee, took to the floor of the U.S. Senate to offer an extraordinary 38-minute explanation of what has gone on over the last several years behind closed doors between the CIA and the Senate in the course of the Senate Committee's investigation and what appears to be an extraordinary overreach, if not an out-and-out criminal attempt, to interfere with the Senate Committee's constitutionally required oversight of the CIA. Amy Davidson in, uh, in The New Yorker quoted Feinstein uh, in her speech yesterday. She said, quote, the CIA just went and searched the committee's computers. 
this was from her speech on the Senate floor. She accused the agency of sabotaging the oversight efforts of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which she chairs, and thus the separation of powers, engaging in a, quote, potential effort to intimidate this staff by accusing them of hacking, breaking its word, and maybe breaking the law. Feinstein continued, besides the constitutional implications, the CIA search may have violated the Fourth Amendment, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as well as Executive Order 12333, which prohibits the CIA from conducting domestic searches or surveillance. She said, the CIA spied on the Senate and the senator is angry. I have grave concerns that the CIA's search may well have violated the separation of powers principles embodied in the United States Constitution. In the meantime, John Brennan, now the head of the CIA, says Feinstein's claims are all little more than stuff and nonsense, nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. As far as the allegations of, you know, CIA hacking into, you know, Senate computers, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we wouldn't do that. No, nothing. Nothing could be further from the truth. The CIA wouldn't do that. Silly Senator Feinstein. David Korn wrote over at Mother Jones what Feinstein didn't say during her uh, extraordinary uh, floor speech, but it's surely implied, is that without effective monitoring, secret government cannot be justified in a democracy. This is indeed a defining moment, Korn writes. It is a big deal for President Barack Obama, who, as is often noted in these situations, once upon a time taught constitutional law. Feinstein has ripped open a scab to reveal a deep wound that has been festering for decades. The president needs to respond in a way that demonstrates he is serious about making the system work and restoring faith in the oversight of the intelligence establishment. This is more than a spy versus Paul's D.C. turf battle, says David Korn. It is a constitutional crisis. Is he right? Let's find out. I'm joined by Marcy Wheeler, who uh, wrote about this all last night in a story headlined, Where the Bodies Are Buried, a Constitutional Crisis, Crisis, Feinstein Better Be Ready to Win. Marcy Wheeler is an independent journalist covering legal issues around national security, civil liberties, and presidential politics for years. She's been a contributor to The Guardian, Salon, and The Progressive, and she now also serves as senior policy analyst at The Intercept, the uh, the new journalism project from Glenn Greenwald, Jeremy Scahill et al. She's also the author of Anatomy of Deceit, How the Bush Administration Used the Media to Sell the Iraq War and Out a Spy. Marcy Wheeler, welcome back to the broadcast. Don't be silly, Brad. The CIA would never would do something <laughs> illicit or illegal. It's just that we, but they wouldn't do that. I don't know why uh, you don't believe them, Marcy. Uh, here, listen, uh, here's what I would like to do. I want to run through, because I think the, the details of what got us to this point are rather extraordinary. I've tried to pull together the timeline uh, to condense it down as much as I can. I'd love to run through it uh, and let you uh, augment it or, or uh, correct it as need be uh, before we then get into the weeds uh, on your story about where the bodies are buried and the constitutional crisis that Feinstein better be ready to win. 
So I'm going to jump through here as quickly as I can to bring us up to speed. And uh, Marcy, feel free, please jump in if I've got anything wrong here, because this is not easy to make sense of. Okay, this goes back to 2002, not long after the September 11th, 2001 attacks. The CIA tortured detainees in secret prisons and videotaped a number of those torture sessions. The CIA and the Bush administration, of course, called it enhanced interrogation. Then... Court orders eventually required the videotapes that were destroyed, uh, or at least the videotapes themselves of these sessions, to be turned over to the U.S. Senate uh, Select Committee, then chaired by Senator Rockefeller, now chaired by Senator Feinstein. Instead, in November 2005, CIA official Jose Rodriguez had 92 of those videotapes physically destroyed. Michael Shredder. It, it, it through a shredder? Note, yeah, put through a put through an industrial shredder. Also important to note two two details right there. Yeah, one is it wasn't just the Senate that was looking for those those tapes. It was a bunch of different court cases and the nine eleven commission. Um, so there were probably four different reasons they should have kept the tapes. And a lawyer, and this is very important to the story, named Robert Edinger, right? Um, okayed the destruction in these industrial shredders of okay. these tapes in 2005. Okay, good. Robert Ettinger, and uh, we'll explain why that's important in a moment. Moving forward, Michael Hayden, who was then the head of the CIA, uh, instead of giving those tapes, he said, oh, here's some cables, here's some descriptions, some notes of those enhanced interrogation sessions. Uh, they're said to be very detailed notes of the interrogations. Uh, he gave those to the committee instead. They were said to be just as descriptive as the tapes, which seems hard to believe. But in any case, that's what Hayden said as the head of the CIA. The committee's report on those descriptions was said to be chilling, according to Feinstein, after which the committee voted 14 to 1 for a broader review. We're now up to 2009. An agreement is struck with the CIA, between the CIA and the Senate, uh, the Senate committee, uh, to allow an off-site facility with computers supposedly segregated from the CIA's regular network. And those comp- uh, those computers had some 6.2 million pages of documents, unindexed, no organizational structure uh, surrounding this interrogation program were sort of dumped on the computers for the Senate committee to come out and use. The committee staff... Two, two yeah. more details. Good. A, even before this time... Um, a bunch of CIA torture documents had disappeared from DOJ's uh, SCIF. Oh, really? Classified document. Yeah, this was sometime between 2006 and 2009 when DOJ started writing an Office of Professional Responsibility report on, on John Hughes and Steve Bradbury's crappy torture memo. <laughs> so there is a history, in addition to the destroyed torture tapes, of documents disappearing from SCIF. And was it set up similarly with the DOJ, that the CIA set up a, a special computer for the DOJ to use in, in that in that case as well? No. Um, in a couple of FOIA reviews, the CIA decided that they had to take the documents back to CIA to do FOIA response, and somehow all the documents didn't come home to roost. I see. Okay. <laughs> somehow. Yeah, somehow they didn't make it back. All right. Then the commi- and- the Senate committee staff goes through all of those documents. They produce a 6,300-page report based on those 6.2 million pages of documents. That report is still classified. 
Uh, it's on the CIA's torture and detention practices. The report is said to also be damning, but it's still classified. It's said to show that no actionable intelligence was gained, by the way, from the so-called enhanced interrogation practices, and it confirms that torture did not lead to the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. Then in 2010, mind you now, we're, we're almost uh, at that point, 2010, we're well about eight years later after the uh, incident that started all of this. So in 2010, according to Feinstein, as the committee was working on their report, documents released to them would suddenly disappear off of their special computer. At first, Feinstein, yeah? Oops. Yeah, oops. Uh, at first, Feinstein uh, says that the uh, CIA stated that the removal of the documents was ordered by the White House. That would be the Obama White House at that point. But when the committee went to the White House, the White House uh, denied it, uh, said they gave the CIA no such order. They called the CIA on this. The uh, committee did, the Senate committee, and Feinstein received an apology. And she says, and that, as far as I was concerned, put the incidents aside. Then... After the report was uh, pretty much finished, uh, we're now, I think, up to December 2012, staffers noticed hundreds of pages of documents known as the Panetta Review had also been removed by the CIA. Is that correct? Had, that, had those already been removed by then, uh, Marcy Willer? Um, what had happened is they had found the the, the um, Panetta Review was still on the servers mm-hmm. as recently as last June. What? Uh, mm-hmm. The, the the report was finished in December of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, the Democrats plus John McCain voted to to release the report. It went to the CIA. They were supposed to give an, a response to it within three months. This is just when John Brennan becomes CIA uh, director. And I'm telling everyone, don't confirm him. You'll regret it. I remember that CIA well. I think we discussed it on this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> CIA takes six months to respond. And um, issues a, a, a blistering response, saying that the committee got everything wrong, that they misrepresented things, they should have interviewed people who weren't made available to be interviewed. And at that point, that what is called the Panetta Review is still available on the servers. Um, and that's when, given the CIA's history of disappearing evidence, the um, staffers moved it in redacted and secure form to their own server because... The Panetta Review agrees with the Senate report. And the Panetta Um, Review is an internal, uh, essentially an internal review of the same documents that they had handed over to the Senate. I shouldn't say handed over to the Senate, that they had put on this special computer for the Senate to use. This is the CIA's own review of those documents. And that Panetta Review uh, essentially confirms everything that's in the Senate report, even though the CIA is objecting to the Senate report, saying, oh, the Senate report, they got it all wrong. Correct? Right. Yeah. And so they kept it because it was proof that even according to the CIA, they were correct. Right. Exactly. And so they actually spirited it out of the uh, this, this special facility. Uh, they followed all the rules for moving classified documents of this sort. They kept it in the uh, uh, in the safe, in the heart building, the way, the way they're supposed to deal with classified documents. OK, so now the uh, the review, the review, the Panetta review sort of confirms everything that the Senate had found. But at some point. The Panetta Review itself is taken off of the computer, off of the special computer that was set up for the Senate. It, too, disappears. Am I correct about that? 
Um, yes, it's taken off of this of uh, the Senate side of those um, of of that network, and it's and, and importantly, um, in December, senators, including Mark Udall, first started saying, "Hey, what about this Panetta report? Mm-hmm. Why does it conflict with?" what you guys have been saying to us. Um, and then the, in December and January, the, 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 the Democrats on the, on the committee started asking, can we get the final version of the Panetta report and poof, it's gone from the servers. And then John Brennan basically goes nuclear. <laughs> and how did he go nuclear? Then this was before. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, he started attacking. I mean, he mm-hmm. he turned and attacked, and and he did it in a very well planned way. Um, he went and called an emergency meeting with Diane Feinstein and Saxby Chambliss, who's the ranking member, and said, "Oh my gosh, your people have been um, accessing networks that they shouldn't have had. We've already done." He he said this on January fifteenth. We've already done an initial. Uh, forensic review of what your people accessed and we we have proof that they didn't have access to these files in our logs and we're going to go ahead and do a more substantive forensic analysis of what they were nosing around in um and and that i think is when diane feinstein first figured out that um john brennan was not working in good faith so they were actually the cia was actually going on to the computers that was set up especially for the senate to use looking around trying to figure out what they were looking at how they got access to this panetta review which was supposedly i guess not supposed to be among the documents that were turned over by the cia uh to the senate committee which by the way it, it seems like they should have turned that over but they're claiming oh, oh that wasn't yeah, supposed to be there this the other- yeah Here's the other really important detail is this the CIA paid forty four million dollars, forty four million dollars to have um, I've heard it was SAIC to have a contractor go through in detail all of the documents they were turning over to the Senate. So first of all, they say the Senate shouldn't have had this document, but it was perfectly okay for SAIC to have the document. And second of all, the CIA spent forty four million dollars to make sure the Senate got especially exactly what they got. So if there's an error, yeah. can we have our $44 million back? <laughs> the 40, so they, they paid a contractor, a third-party contractor, to look at the documents before they would even give them to the U.S. Senate to study, to oversee the CIA. They were vetting these documents, which we could and couldn't give to the uh, to the U.S. Senate. Okay, now... Then the CIA goes back into that computer. They're not supposed to touch that computer other than for, uh, you know, technical purposes. If the senators, you know, need some help creating a, a search tool or something, they go back in. They start nosing around, finding out what it is that the Senate is looking at. And this is an amazing part of the story, as if it's not amazing enough. At some point, uh, the inspector, uh, well, let's see, actually, the the, uh, uh, not the inspector general, the general counsel for the CIA alleges that the Senate committee is somehow hacking into documents. Somehow they were inappropriately uh, obtaining this Panetta review. And the CIA's general counsel refers uh, the case to the DOJ as a criminal case and says that the Senate has been hacking our systems. 
correct before we reveal who we believe this uh, inspector, uh, this uh, general counsel is at the CIA? Yeah, um, basically, Dianne Feinstein asked the inspector general to look into the CIA spying on the Senate. And in response, the acting general counsel said, well, fine, I'll just refer your staffers to the FBI for criminal investigation. So, so the CIA uh, inspector general is referring this to the uh, Department of Justice, saying that the CIA might be doing spying on the Senate. And then the CIA's uh, counselor also refers it to the DOJ and says, hey, it's the senators. They've been hacking us. So now we've got accusations on both sides. Uh, One side seems to have more evidence than the other, but never mind that. The result is uh, accusations of inappropriate, unconstitutional separation of powers issues. As the CIA is part of the executive branch, they're interfering with the legislative branch's oversight committee that is supposed to be overseeing the CIA. And, of course, what David Korn and Marcy Wheeler and others are calling a bona fide constitutional crisis, uh, as you described in Where the Bodies Are Buried, a Constitutional Crisis, Feinstein better be ready to win. Okay, before we go to the now what aspect of this, Marcy Wheeler, uh, who is Robert Ettinger and why uh, did you mention him early in this timeline? Robert Ettinger is the guy who, the acting general counsel who, launched a criminal investigation into CIA, to uh, Senate staffers. And importantly, yeah. he's mentioned in this report 1,600 times. 1,600 times the report is substantially about the lies that the CIA and him in particular told to, among others, DOJ to get torture approved. And when things got too hot, he decided to launch a witch hunt into the people are supposed to be overseeing him. Now, he was, uh, now he's the general counsel, but at the time when this uh, torture and interrogation, secret prisons was going on, he was the lawyer for the unit in the CIA that was doing the torture and the secret prisons and everything else, right? And that's why his name comes up 1,600 times in the Senate's still unreleased classified report. Yeah, it's pretty impressive because he was only the lawyer for that unit from April 2004 until... uh, until 2009, but the but the report the the program allegedly ended in 2006. So he's only, you know, he was only the um, the the lawyer for 29 months of a you know six year five year program, and yet he still gets named 1600 times in the report. Gets names it, it, that is uh, 1600 times he's named, and now to keep this report from coming to uh, coming to light. He is now referring the case as a criminal case to the DOJ, saying that the Senate has somehow hacked the CIA. And that, by the way, is what seems to have uh, hacked Dianne Feinstein off yesterday enough that she was willing to go on the floor. Dianne Feinstein, uh, you know, has, has not, uh, you know, has not exactly been an enemy to the intelligence agencies before she, uh, you know, came out and and went on this rant yesterday. So, Marcy Wheeler, now what? Now where does this go from here legally? And whose buried bodies are you talking about in in your piece at EmptyWheel.net last night? Well, legally it goes to DOJ, and probably they're investigating both sides. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I think Jim Comey is now in charge of the FBI, and he's been known to fight against torture, especially in 2005, 
Um, he was opposing memos that Robert Ettinger had a role in lying to DOJ to get approved. So Jim Comey, um, you know, I, you know, as soon as I say this, I realize the CIA is going to ask him to recuse himself, but mm. um, that hasn't happened yet. I'm mm. just predicting. Right. Um, Jim Comey will investigate it legitimately, but DOJ has twice in Eric Holder's tenure kind of taken a big fall for, for the CIA. First, when it refused to refer charges for any of the actual torturers, and then um, when something very similar happened, when the Gitmo detainees tried to, on their own basis, find the identities of the torturers, the CIA basically said, you hunt down until you find somebody, until you know, basically until we get ahead, because um, it's wrong for anyone to try and find the identity of these people who tortured. And that's why John Kiriakou, who's a former CIA guy, that's why he's in jail right now, is because um, he gave these lawyers the identity of one of the torturers that never was made public, but nevertheless, John Kiriako in jail for 30 months because the CIA demanded ahead and, and he was it. So, that, you know, the DOJ has been very solicitous of CIA's mm-hmm. demands to help protect, to help cover up. The torture program. Well, the fact that Robert Ettinger has got you know received a, a promotion clearly from back when he was heading the torture unit to now be the uh, general counsel, it seems like there is no accountability for anybody or anything at the CIA. Period. But Marcy, why is this a uh, what makes this a constitutional crisis, and why does this put uh, as David Korn described, uh, why does this undermine the basis for secret government? Well, look, if you can't have an independent check on the executive branch, I mean, if the president can order the CIA to do whatever he wants, whether it's torture or whether it's assassinate an American citizen with no due process, and there is no check, the the Senate, the House cannot act as an independent check of those programs, then you you basically have no rule of law. The president can do whatever he wants, and there there's no oversight over that. Um, mm-hmm. And and the oversight was weak. I mean, I, you know, I sort of said we've been coming to this constitutional crisis for a long time because the oversight is weak. There are long. I was able to show in 2009 that the CIA had been lying to to Congress. It turns out the report validates what I said. The CIA was also lying to DOJ and to the White House, um, but but if that's the case, if the CIA can just lie and lie and lie and cover up their torture, then there's no way to bring them back in some kind of rule of law. And this and, is yeah, and and frankly, um, one of the the Obama administration. Uh, starting in 2009, actually took unprecedented steps to hide the president's role, mm-hmm. meaning Bush, but mm-hmm. the office of, of the president's role in ordering up this torture program. The ACLU had a FOIA and a judge in the FOIA said, OK, you got to release this little phrase, probably a four word phrase that says the entire torture program was done pursuant to presidential declaration to presidential notification. And um, for the first time ever, as far as I know, the White House got the um, National Security Advisor to complain and say, no, you can't release it. And they succeeded. Um, Some of the things they were probably hiding was that at the period when it was done solely on presidential authorization, they did things that even the British agree, accused of being torture, 
Um, but starting in really fall of 2009, the Obama administration starts going to great lengths to hide the president's role in torture. President Bush's role then, in torture. President Bush's role, right. but the institution of the president's the presidency. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly enough, when the Second Circuit in New York said, OK, you can hide that to the president, to the White House, um, one of the reasons they gave was that that presidential memorandum of notification, what's called a finding in in what's supposed to be the oversight process for Mm -hmm. the CIA, the reason you can hide that is because it's still being used. That finding authorized not just torture and, you know, in rendition, Mm -hmm. but it also authorized targeted killing. So it also authorized Obama's drone program. But the the basis for all of this, and I'm speaking with Marcy Wheeler of Empty Net, Empty Wheel and .net, and of the now of the Intercept. I've got just a minute or two here left. The 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 whole idea here, the excuse or the uh, explanation that's been given for the these secret government programs is that oh, don't worry, and Obama has used this like crazy. Don't worry, there is oversight everywhere. The Senate is you know overseeing everything that's done. We've got courts that are overseeing everything that's done. Well, we know now that the courts weren't overseeing everything in the NSA case, uh, or at least when they were, they were saying, no, you guys are breaking the law. Uh, And now, uh, and and Feinstein has been a great defender of that program. Uh, A Guardian editorial yesterday uh, talked about the double life of Dianne Feinstein and said that her anger is, quote, restricted to issues that impact on her. Juan Cole tweeted today, when it is Feinstein being spied on, suddenly she squawks. Uh, And uh, Jeff Kay also points out uh, on Twitter that uh, Feinstein is a big supporter of the Army Field Manual and its Appendix M, which has been condemned as torture by many. How much here is Feinstein to blame for the fact that uh, she's been, you know, really the top one of the top congressional apologists for virtually everything the intelligence agencies have been doing now for uh, for a decade. How much is she to blame uh, for this mess that now she finds herself and her staffers in? Well, she has been selective about the things she cares about, and she has legitimately, for even before she became intelligence chair, she has legitimately been um, trying to rein in torture. So it's not just that she got spied on, it's also that she cares about torture, but yeah, the irony is not lost on me. Once the the Senate Intelligence Committee gets spied on, then all of a sudden spying is out of control. Right. But the you know, this the this the same kind of monitoring of networks of forensics that the CIA did on her staffers is the kind of stuff we're complaining about that the NSA does. Right. And so you know, it, to some degree, she's proving what we're all saying right, which is that there is no oversight. But she has yet to kind of go, oh, gosh, I guess I was completely wrong about the NSA as well. Do you think it'll have any effect on her uh, on her outlook of the NSA surveillance programs that we've all been complaining about, but that she says, oh, everything is fine, nothing to worry about? I don't think it'll have an effect on her opinion about it. But I think that this is going to explode so significantly that to some degree, I, I don't think she's prepared for this as well as John Brennan has. Um, I, I also think she believed that Obama was in her camp, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that. I mean, he's going to back John Brennan again because John Brennan knows where Obama's bodies are buried, which is why I raised the drone program. 
And therefore, I think she is going to quickly lose control of the situation unless she does some pretty aggressive things, one of which is to find some way to release the report in some way that is deemed legitimate. And how does releasing the, the, the report here actually, at this point, help us? I mean, these people uh, you know, who need to be held accountable for breaking the law, I'm not even talking about the CIA spying on the Senate, but you know, the, the torture activities, they've all been given a pass. So what do we learn if this report is declassified and, uh, and, and released? What, what good does that ultimately do us, Marcy? One possibility, and it's only an outside possibility, is that the CIA is so discredited as, uh, as basically be, refusing to um, be reined in by any means, lying to every single entity out there, engaging in torture gratuitously, so as to develop lies to get us into the Iraq war, um, kind of doubling down on the lies. I mean, if and that is what the report shows. If, the, if that is the way the report is regarded, then we get to start talking about what we do with this out-of-control CIA, which is, you know, which doesn't get us to also reigning in the NSA. But, but that's one of the only ways that Diane Feinstein is going to regain control over what I think is spinning out of control. And I think, I mean, the goal, John Brennan's goal is to stall this through November to get the Republicans elected, mm. get, get, get them a majority in the Senate. And they're already starting to go after Mark Udall, who's up for reelection this year. And, and, uh, Richard Burr will become the Senate intelligence chair and he will he will trash this report within seconds. He will make this all go away. And you have concerns that the CIA uh, now has a very serious stake in seeing the Senate turn Republican this November. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, the Republicans are already going after Udall and Dianne Feinstein. Mm-hmm. And as I said, Udall is in a swing state and he's up for re-election. They're, they're, they're claiming he needs an ethics investigation. Um, their idea is to attack, 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 and Richard Burr wants to be Senate Intelligence Chair. And you know what? If he is, he's going to let the CIA go wild. This is an amazing story. I suspect this is going to continue to blow up for a while. And, of course, we can all thank Barack Obama and his decision uh, to look forward, not back, and hold no one accountable for all of this Bush torture uh, and the rendition and everything that happened uh, during that administration. Uh, and if Obama ends up losing his Democratic Senate because of it, uh, thanks to some, uh, let's call it, uh, dirty tricks by the CIA between now and November, well, Obama can thank himself for that, I suppose. Uh, Marcy Wheeler, uh, I suspect we may talk more about this in the coming days, weeks, and months. Always great to talk to you, Marcy. Uh, Marcy Wheeler from EmptyWheel.net, and now the senior policy analyst at the Intercept. Great talking to you, Marcy. Great to be here, Brad. Thanks for having me. Stay safe out there. Don't talk about the weather. It's a military secret. Just keep your wits together. That's the safest way to keep it. These are critical times. Be careful of espionage. In such critical times, you've got to watch out for sabotage. Yeah, watch out for sabotage, U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. 
brother. What an amazing story. We're going to take a quick break and come back with much more Bradcast straight ahead, an e-cig ban update, and of course, Desi Doyen and the Green News, and much, much more all straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman on KPFK. This is your Bradcast. Thank you for your contributions during our recent fund drive. This is Sage Graywall, chair of the local station board here at KPFK, inviting you, the listener, to our next LSB meeting on Saturday, March 15th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the Peace Center, located at 3916 South Sepulveda Boulevard in Culver City. The local station board meeting typically includes a report from the station's interim general manager, reports from local committees, and time for public comment allocated throughout the meeting. There is also a public call to all our listeners and supporters to join the LSB committees by April. You can sign up at the meeting. Once again, that's Saturday, March 15th from 1 to 4 p.m., at 3916 South Sepulveda Boulevard in Culver City. You can go to www.kpfk.org and go to the community calendar for details. Right here on the Bradcast on KPFK. Glad, uh, thank you for staying with us. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Boy, a lot of stuff going on this week. A lot of it I was hoping to cover uh, in the hour today and take some calls from you. And I don't know if we're going to get to them now or not because of, well, thanks to Dianne Feinstein. Thanks, DiFi. You've ruined the Bradcast. You've broken the Bradcast again. Uh, but so I'll hit a couple of things. And if you do want to tweet me, you can always do so at the Brad blog. That's my Twitter handle, the Brad blog. Um, a couple of things I, I, I do want to hit, though. I don't know if you heard our uh, our program last week just after the L.A. City Council out here uh, did something that I think is outrageous. They voted to ban e-cigarettes uh, and, and force people who are trying to use them to quit smoking because in case I wasn't clear last week, vaping, as we call it, is not smoking. It is There is no evidence that it is harmful for you. Uh, and yet they've, uh, they've banned it. Uh, and if Eric Garcetti, the mayor out here, agrees to this ban and signs this thing, uh, then as the L.A. City Councilman I spoke with last week, Paul Koretz, um, as they want, they will send people who are trying to quit smoking, who are using e-cigs and vaping, uh, out with the smokers. And as a great caller said last week, that's the equivalent of taking an alcoholic and uh, forcing him to go wait in the bar. It's absolutely insane, and it will kill people. And I urged uh, folks last week uh, to call Eric Garcetti at 213-978-0600 or stop by lamayor.org and leave a comment there, 213-978-0600. 
Uh, I've been a smoker for decades, and I switched to e-cigs, and I stopped smoking overnight. It was the only thing that did that. Now, uh, some informa- new information that I uh, got after I got off the air, I wish I'd had it when I was on the air and speaking with the L.A. City Councilman, who really was able to offer no information for why this is being done. No evidence that uh, vaping is dangerous in any way. But I found this uh, from Charles D. Connor, the former president and CEO of the American Lung Association, who says that the uh, L.A. plan to ban e-cigs is misguided. It would do a public health disservice, discouraging smokers from switching to less harmful electronic cigarettes that do not combust tobacco and therefore do not create secondhand smoke. As a former president of the American Lung Association, he writes, I have seen how e-cigarettes have become the subject of much confusion and misinformation, which has led to a classic case of guilt by association. E-cigarettes may deliver nicotine and look like cigarettes, but there the similarities end. And by the way, we have no evidence that nicotine is bad for you, at least any more harmful than caffeine. And there are studies out there that find that nicotine actually uh, may lower uh, your rate of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's by 50 percent. Anyway, uh, I posted uh, the comments from Charles Connor uh, at bradblog.com. As an addendum to uh, last week's uh, show that I posted up there, so you can go over to bradblog.com and and look that up. It's it's amazing that the L.A. City Council would want to do that. But you know what? They've done it in Chicago. They've done it in New York. And frankly, I don't know what these people are thinking. They are going to kill people. So... Uh, and apparently even the uh, former president of the American Lung Association agrees. You can uh, ask Eric Garcetti very politely to do the right thing and veto this bill uh, at lamayor.org LAMayor.org, or call 213-978-0600. Okay, some other business I wanted to get to here. Um because I was actually, uh, you know, feeling good uh, coming into the show this week before I decided to cover the, the, the CIA Senate spying fiasco slash constitutional crisis. I was feeling good because I am seeing uh, signs out there that uh, tables are turning, that people are beginning to get it, that people are beginning to understand what's going on here. They're beginning to understand how the oligarchs uh, are, are lying to them. Uh, keeping them down. There's certain clues. And I know, you know, you're not supposed to come on talk radio and be in a good mood and talk about positive, encouraging things. You're supposed to be furious. Well, I'm not furious. Uh, Not in this case. Uh, I'm seeing certain signs. Um, Let me give you just a couple of them before we go to Desi Doyen and the Green News. In Arizona, uh, where Governor uh, Jan Brewer made a big show of vetoing a so-called religious freedom bill, it was really a discrimination bill, a discriminate against gay people bill, it turns out that memos now show that her office actually helped write the bill that she later went on to claim, oh, it's just too broadly written. I'm going to veto it. So in the end, she was not unlike uh, several of those Arizona state senators who had actually voted for this discriminate against gays bill, but then decided they uh, they wanted it to be vetoed and they started to advocate for its veto. 
Josh Marshall, a Talking Points memo, wrote that, uh, quote, we seem to have gotten to the point where the opponents are genuinely on the run, to the point where they're making stupid mistakes or unable to process the speed of the changing landscape. That's good news. Because uh, the people are getting this one right. Anyone who wants to call themselves a conservative should understand that marriage equality uh, means equality for everyone, that equal justice under the law in the Constitution means equal justice for everyone. Uh, So even the right-wingers are backing off. That's good. And we have more signs of that. Up in Oregon, the Oregon GOP uh, voted against a ban on marriage equality. Republicans at a re- Oregon political conference voted two to one this weekend to endorse gay marriage. The Oregonian reports that Republican attendees at the Dorchester Conference, an annual political organizing event, voted 233 to 162 in favor of a measure legalizing gay marriage in Oregon. Uh, that will appear on the November ballot. Now, the results are skewed here. Social conservatives had boycotted the event, so don't take too much from it. But um, still, it demonstrates the growing GOP division over that issue. Meantime, up in Iowa, Iowans are against the uh, Republican polling place photo ID restriction rationale. Ian Milheiser writes at Think Progress, by a massive 46-point margin, Iowans believe that it is more important that every eligible registered voter has the opportunity to vote than it is to make sure that no person ineligible to vote slips through the cracks and casts a vote. 71% of respondents to a Des Moines register poll preferred the first option, that every eligible registered voter has the opportunity to vote, and just 25% preferred uh, the latter, that uh, no person ineligible uh, vote, uh, to vote slips through the cracks and casts a vote. So uh, this poll, writes Milheiser, is the second blow in just one week to Iowa Secretary of State Matt Schultz who campaigned in 2010 on his support for voter ID, a common voter suppression law. Last Wednesday, an Iowa judge permanently struck down Schultz's attempt to purge voters from the voter rolls up there on suspicion that they could be non-citizens. The people are getting it. Uh, And this is exactly what happened in Minnesota in 2012, where they put this on the ballot uh, and uh, for photo ID restrictions, and it went down in flames. So the pe- more people are becoming informed, uh, the more encouraged I'm getting that they're getting it, they're getting the scam, they're understanding what's going on. By the way, up in Iowa, speaking of uh, Iowa and polling place photo ID restrictions, back in 2012, we covered at Brad Blog how the Iowa GOP caucus, in which they don't have to worry about when they do the caucuses, the Iowa caucuses, they don't have to worry about the law. They don't have to worry about the courts. They don't have to worry about the Constitution. They can run that those caucuses pretty much any way they want. And when the Republicans ran their own caucus back in 2012, the presidential caucus, uh, they did not require photo ID for voters. Imagine that. Oh, and by the way, They hand-counted paper ballots. And that's how we were eventually able to find out who actually won the Iowa caucus. And it wasn't Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was the one who was announced the winner on caucus night, thanks to public oversight 
of those paper ballots, those hand-marked paper ballots up in Iowa in the Iowa caucus in 2012, we found out the real winner was Rick Santorum. We would have never known that otherwise. And in fact, uh, Mitt Romney would have been uh, thought to be the official winner had it not been for that. All right, let's do some green news. All right, melting for you, Desi Doyen. And we really are melting. It's like pushing 80 degrees out here. It's going to be pushing 90 by the weekend. Yeah, that's really March weather for California. What the heck? Yeah, now, of course, that's only weather. That's not climate, except for the fact that it has been 80s and 90s all winter long. And if uh, this winter doesn't turn out to be one of the hottest on record ever for the West Coast, I will eat my hat. Oh, goody. If, I look forward to that. If, if I had a hat, <laughs> well, I we'll would see. Eat it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there may be an El Nino uh, coming up uh, later this year, which uh, NASA and NOAA have both said ah, it looks like the patterns are forming and El Nino might be forming. So that, that would be good news for California if it brings more rain, but bad news for many other places. Because it brings more rain, uh, but can, does it bring more heat with it? An El Nino? Uh, yeah, it can also bring a lot of heat with it, and that would increase the global average temperature. But, you know, we'll see what happens if it actually forms or not. Before we get to uh, our latest Green News report, I want to play this because uh, we used it on our, our, uh, our last week's Green News report. We do, for folks who don't know, we do uh, actually two of them a week. We only get to play one of them here uh, a week on the broadcast. So if you miss any Green News reports uh, or you want to hear all of them, go to iTunes. You can download it there. You can also get it from bradblog.com. But go to iTunes and uh, please feel free to uh, give us a review at iTunes because that will, in turn, presuming they're good reviews, that will help more people hear the Green News Report. And frankly, uh, we're one of the few people who uh, actually reports on these issues uh, constantly, every day, well, at least twice a week. So go check those out. But uh, we played one clip last week on the Green News Report that did not appear on the broadcast. And so I want to play it. It's a sh- very, very short one. This is uh, the Republican Senate debate in Colorado, six candidates vying for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate in Colorado, uh, and they were all six asked about climate change. Yeah, but here's the point. There's no science. Nope, wrong one. Uh, Number five instead. My mistake. Do you believe our planet is being impacted by man-made global warming, Ken? No. Colin? No. Tom? No. Amy? No. Floyd? Definitely not. Mark? No. There you go. Those are candidates for the U.S. Senate. The U.S. Senate. These people are supposed to understand science and make policy that actually moves the United States forward and works on behalf of its citizens. And they're all climate science deniers. All six of them say that uh, humans have no influence whatsoever over climate change. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Okay. uh, Last point before we go to the Green News report. Uh, LOL GOP, our friend on uh, Twitter, writes, if you think gay marriage threatens your marriage... But climate change doesn't threaten your climate. Cancel basic cable. (laughs) I think he's got it right. And with that, let's go to uh, this week's Green News Report. It's time for Congress to wake up and to tackle this issue. That's why we're staying up all night tonight uh, to make that major point. Up all night for climate in the U.S. Senate. 
Iconic Iditarod race struggles without snow. California breaks solar power records. Plus, inside the exclusion zone, it remains a post-apocalyptic landscape of abandoned towns frozen in time. The third anniversary of the meltdown of Fukushima and the legacy of nuclear disaster. All of those meltdowns and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And so now I'm allowing people on all the liberal websites to go, well, when it's cold, that means that there's climate change. But when it's warm, that means there's climate change. But when it's like in the middle, that means there's climate change. Hey, that's great. Joe Scarborough on that liberal MSNBC. Three hours of it a day. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's amusing how folks say that MSNBC, that's just the liberal version of Fox News. They they don't seem to notice Joe Scarborough's three hours of nonsense every single morning, do they? No, they don't. That would be an inconvenient truth, I think. <laughs> Whoa, well done. Speaking of nonsense and inconvenient truths, the U.S. Senate was up all night talking about climate change, eh? Yes, they were. While people were sound asleep and not paying attention, eh? Well, some people were paying attention. Well, all I hope is that all that time they took, they actually got the legislation passed they stayed up all night to work on. Uh, well, not actually, but we'll have more on that in a moment. Okay. First, a very important anniversary. Tuesday marks the third anniversary of the record 9.0 earthquake and catastrophic tsunami that devastated northeastern Japan and killed nearly 20,000 people and caused the disastrous meltdown of three nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The legacy of the nuclear disaster lingers. Thousands of people evacuated from the region remain in temporary shelters, are still suffering the long-term acute psychological and health consequences from the nuclear disaster that continues to impact the nation as a whole. The stricken reactors Reactors are stable but still precarious. Plant owner TEPCO admitted this week it may ultimately be forced to dump radioactive wastewater used to cool the reactors into the Pacific. There's much more at our website, including a scathing new report from NBC News revealing how the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission downplayed the disaster and hid their concerns. That's nice of NBC News to notice three years later. Meanwhile, in Alaska, what's a sled race without snow? Just ask racers in the iconic Iditarod sled race in Alaska, which finished on Tuesday morning. They had plenty of racers, but not much snow after the third warmest January on record in the state. Organizers trucked in new snow to bolster the finish line. The racers said it was the roughest conditions they'd ever seen. Not enough snow for a dog sled race? Yeah. In Alaska? Yep. Nothing to worry about, nothing to see here. What were they talking about in the U.S. Senate all night again? Oh, yeah, it was up all night for the climate. The time is now for us to take bold and decisive action. Nearly 30 Senate Democrats took to the Senate floor on Monday to launch a 15-hour climate change talkathon led by Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island and Barbara Boxer of California part of a campaign by the new Senate Climate Caucus to push for action on climate change. Will we bury our head in the tar sand and let other nations' innovators be the ones who grab leadership in this new energy economy? Will we create the new technologies and sell them to other nations, or will we be late to the game and have to buy all the technologies from other nations? Mm, yeah, I think that last one. 
that does seem to be what we're going for. Republicans did not take part, nor did vulnerable Senate Democrats up for re-election in big oil states. Nor did any Americans who have to, you know, sleep at night. Was there any particular legislation that the Senate decided they needed to push through in the middle of the night? No. The Senate Climate Caucus members said this was a symbolic marathon and there is zero chance of passing climate legislation this year, but they did get media attention. Mm, Yeah. So if they're going to put on a show, I suggest put it on during the day when people might actually watch. I'm glad to hear you say it got some media attention, however. Well, The Fix reports that when it comes to elections, talking about climate change is becoming a winning strategy with voters. That's according to a new study on the 2010 elections showing voters preferred Democratic candidates over climate change deniers by at least 3%. Finally, California hit a renewable energy generation milestone. Over the weekend, solar power generated 18% of California's electricity demand entirely carbon-free. Electricity generated by solar has more than doubled in California in the last year and a half. Thank you for ending with some good news, especially from out here in California. Way to go, Golden State. For much more on that and the stories we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Download any of our episodes anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Find us and follow us on the Facebook and on the Twitters 24-7 at Green News Report. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. We're up all night to the sun. We're up all night to get sun. We're up all night for good fun. We're up all night to get lucky. We're up all night to get Yeah, I don't know if the senators in the Democratic Party were going to get lucky with climate change action, but at least they were out talking about it. And, you know, there are studies that show that the the, the public will pay attention to issues when the media and the politicians talk about it, no matter what the subject is. So by talking about it, by getting the media to talk about it, it actually does raise awareness among the public that this is serious and we need to act upon it Even if they're talking about it in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but see, there was so much, you know, it was Uh really active on social media, all the climate change deniers. You had the uh, Fox News just was apoplectic about it, practically, making fun of it, mocking it, but they were talking about it. And, so. and that's a good enough reason to do it right there. I actually have a, uh, a, a clip that I wanted to play. Maybe we'll get to it next week uh, from Fox News, uh, which actually defies description. So come on back next week. <laughs> Next week, same time, same Brad time, same Brad channel, and we will talk about that if we can get to it. Uh, Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to G, our soundboard operator. Stay tuned. Oh, and uh, thanks to our guest, Marcy Wheeler from EmptyWheel.net. Stay tuned for John Wiener and the 4 o'clock report. Our friend Ari Berman from The Nation will be with, uh, with John talking about the continuing fight for voting rights. Sounds like a good idea. Until next week, you can find me on the Twitters at the Bradblog and, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America.